I'm sure, children, you've had an invitation to a birthday party before, and uh, your parents have had invitations to weddings, and it's a wonderful thing to be invited to special occasions. But there is no invitation that is as precious and important as the invitation we have in front of us this afternoon. And that is the invitation of Jesus to come to him. It's a simple invocation, really. It's it's something that uh, even a a little child can understand, if you think of it. I mean, when, when a grandchild starts to walk and take the first steps, you know, you, you hear that on a telephone, but you say, well, I would love to see that. And, and so when they come, the proud parents present the little child, and it's on its feet, and, and you get down as a grandpa, and you, and you say, come, come on. That's a real satisfying thing to, to have a, a little child take the first steps. And as a, a grandfather, you, you really enjoy those time sharing those special moments of a child taking a first step and what a special thing it is as parents, as grandparents, to hear that a child of the covenant has come to the Lord Jesus. That's even more important. And yet, as simple as the invitation is, that a little child can understand the invitation, come. The surprising thing is that theologians and preachers of different persuasions have troubled themselves over such invitations as we have in front of us and have with all kinds of theological doctrines and theories and nuances and ideas made it a difficult invitation to understand. And now, of course, part of the discussion involves the balance between the sovereignty of God in the salvation of a sinner and the responsibility of man with respect to his response to the gospel. And we have in front of us a passage in the context where there's no doubt about it that Jesus himself subscribes fully to the sovereignty of God in grace. Now listen to some of the expressions of the Lord Jesus in the very context of our text. As you hear Jesus speaking in the immediate context to verse 27, where Jesus says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father, and neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And in the verse before, the, the Lord Jesus actually thanks the Father concerning the sovereignty of his grace. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. That there is that truth that the Lord indeed, administers in his sovereignty the dispensation of his grace for salvation in that he hides the truth of the gospel from some and reveals it to others. 
And what an irony that it is hidden from those who, with all their theological theories, think themselves to be so wise and prudent, and yet it's hidden from them. And the Lord turns around and reveals it to a baby, to a little one, to one who simply embraces the obvious meaning of the gospel. Indeed, God is sovereign. But in the same context, we have Jesus subscribing just as much to the responsibility of man in salvation. In the context, we hear him saying to people who have not believed the marvelous works that he has done or the, the sermons that he has preached, he says to them, Woe to you! He is warning them of a coming judgment because they did not respond in faith. And all the accountability for their, their soul's demise is on their own conscience. As he says in verses 20 and 21, Woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida and then even Capernaum. We heard about Capernaum this morning. And Jesus had done marvelous things there. But there had been unbelief in the response. And so we see that Jesus certainly subscribes to both sovereignty and responsibility. And yet, in all the compassion of his heart, he comes with these simple words of the invitation of the gospel and says, Come unto me. Well, let's focus our attention on this invitation of Jesus as he says, Come unto me. And uh, we haven't issued any uh, points in the bulletin, but the outline will be a very simple one. It will be six questions, and we'll try to to open up the answers to these six questions. So uh, that's all you need to do. You just need to keep record of the questions. First question, who is sending the invitation? Who is inviting you know, when you receive an invitation in the mail, the first thing you do is not even look at the fact that it's addressed to you, but you flip it over, or you look at the corner. Say, who's the sender? Who's it coming from? Who's inviting me to this special occasion? And, well, here it is, Christ himself. Now, some people may object to the immediacy uh, of this authority in the invitation coming from human beings. And how can we really take that on the same authority? But many ministers go out and just invite people, and, and well, we can't go by the word of man, can we? May they just say, come to Christ? What authority they have? Well, the Apostle Paul explains that to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20, where he says, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. What is an ambassador? If there is someone who is in a position of authority in a country, a prime minister or a king or a queen, they, they will send emissaries to another country. And you do that by way of an ambassador. An ambassador takes the words of the person in authority, and he conveys that, and inasmuch as he conveys faithfully what is being said, those words are to be received as having the full authority of the person who has sent the ambassador. And the apostle says, that's who we are as apostles. 
And we believe it is legitimate to say and extrapolate from that that we as preachers have that authority. Listen to the way he describes it. Now, we then as ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. So sent out by Christ, he is saying, we come even with the authority of the triune God himself. And to take it that as these beseeching words, these invitations, these calls of the gospel come to you, they come with the full authority of the triune God himself. As though God himself did beseech you by us. And we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. You sense how the Apostle Paul is fully persuaded that when he speaks the infallible word of Christ or the record of the gospel as it is in Scripture, or even in his case as an apostle, what he may say by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it comes with divine authority in the stead of Christ. So who's inviting? Well, we see it on the pages of Scripture. It's Jesus. Back up to verse 25. Who is it that's speaking this? At that time, Jesus answered and said, and he said everything that comes from verse 25 down to the end of the chapter. And he said this too, come to me. And so listen, as though Christ himself were speaking to you today. To whom are we invited? So when you get an invitation, you ask yourself the question, well, uh, what is this about? And, uh, and where, are we, where are we to go? Where is this event taking place? Well, in this particular case, the invitation is very simple. It has this reflexive aspect. Come unto me, he says. And what a pleasant invitation that is. No matter where you are invited, no matter how much fun you have or how much enjoyment you have, no matter how much pleasure you, you can get, there is no place and there is no person to whom you could be invited that would provide more to you than this person, Jesus Christ. For he is such an able Savior. He is able to save unto the uttermost all who come to God by him. He is able to, to save. He is a faithful Savior. When he speaks, he speaks with all the, the genuineness of his character as the Son of God. He is faithful who calls, and he is gracious he is full of grace and truth. All the fullness of the Godhead is in him, in fact, the apostle writes in the Colossian letter. Everything that belongs to God also is in him. He is the incarnate God in flesh and blood. He is there. The wholeness of God is united to the totality of his humanity, and he is inviting us. He invited the people to whom he spoke here, and even now today, as ambassador of the one who is sitting in heaven at this time, the one who has, has his hands pierced, having been crucified, 
He is the one who is inviting us today to come to Himself. Such a suitable Savior, such a capable Savior, a faithful Savior, and He is calling us directly to Him. He is not saying, well, first go to some, some saint, some other mediator, St. Mary or Joseph, or, or go to some priest. No, He is saying, come to Me. He is not saying, come simply to the means of grace, as good as that is. Certainly, come to church, come to your Bible, come to your catechism class, come to the fellowship of the believers together as they seek to encourage one another. But with all that kind of coming, you have not yet come according to this invitation until you have come directly to Christ Himself. Give your soul no rest until you have come to Him. Well, thirdly, the question is, what is this coming? What is it? And it is helpful that in Scripture we have these parallel passages, just as, for instance, in the book of Proverbs you have these Hebrew parallelisms, we call them. Uh, Poetry in Hebrew is not that the words rhyme so much as the meanings rhyme. So you have one statement, and then it might be said the opposite way in the next, reinforcing it, just sort of flipping the coin, the same coin over, or it may say the same thing in, this, in a similar way. And so you take these statements as explaining each other. So what I mean by that is that if we take a statement like in John 6 and verse 35, then we have some clarity added for our help here to know what Jesus means when He says, come. Well, there He says, I am the bread of life. He that comes to Me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on Me shall never thirst. So you notice the parallel statements about the need, the hunger, and the thirst. So different ways of describing the need of the soul that we, we lack, we hunger and thirst after righteousness, and we, we long for this fellowship with the Lord, or we need to be right with God and have peace with God. Those are parallels, but also coming and believing in that text. So what Jesus is saying is that when I say come, I mean something very similar to believe. And the, the gospel call indeed is, is not only repent, but also in your repenting, come to God. In your repenting, also believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith is necessary. And so, the Lord invites us to come to Him and believe. And this believing is, is a, a commitment a wholehearted, an all-in kind of commitment to the Lord Jesus. When a young couple comes in front of the church and the question is asked and they say, yes, I do, it is expected that they're all-in as far as committed to each other, for better or for worse, throughout our life. And when Jesus says, come unto me, 
He invites us to come with all the burden of our sin, with all the weight of our troubles, with all the the depravity of our nature, with all the defilement of our record. He says, come, just come. Come to me. Cast all your cares upon me and trust yourself to me. I love the definition of of John, the late Professor John Murray, uh, concerning faith. What is faith? His definition is this. Faith is self-commitment to Christ in all the glory of His person and in all the perfection of His work as He is so freely and fully offered in the gospel. Well, this invitation is one in which Jesus Christ offers Himself in all the glory of His person as the Son of God and in all the perfection of His work as the mediator who laid down His life, who paid for sin, who did it all. And He offers Himself to us and and He calls us to Himself. Come and trust yourself wholly to Me, He means when he says, come. And so he says that to us. But what is offered? What is offered by this invitation when he says, come to me? Well, what is offered is everything that he can provide in, for the salvation of our soul and for our safe journey from here to heaven. And he summarizes the blessings of salvation further on in this text when he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sometimes all of our troubles can be summarized with this word, restlessness, troubled, stressed, burdened, just the restlessness of the soul. St. Augustine was a young man who, who certainly went into the world and, and in, engaged himself and, and wallowed in all the sins that the world offered until the Lord spoke to him and converted him. And then he came to the conclusion that he writes this statement, Lord, thou hast made us for thyself. Our souls are restless until they rest in Thee. But isn't it true? We are restless creatures. We turn up the music because we don't want to hear our own conscience. By nature, we would run away from church. By nature, we don't want to hear the Bible. We don't want to hear preaching. We are restless that the Lord invites us to come to Him. Rest. Rest from the full burden of the guilt of your soul. Your restlessness, if we're honest, the restlessness is especially this guiltiness of our conscience. Our conscience is screaming that we are not right with God, that we really are not ready to die, that we are not at peace with God. And he says, Give up the fight. Come to me. Rest. Rest from the burden of your guiltiness 
rest from the condemnation of the law. You read the Bible, you read the Ten Commandments, you hear them on Sunday, and all of these commandments that call us to to live holy, to live with a full love for God and a love for our neighbor, with all our heart and soul, mind committed to Him, and where conscience tells us and the commandments scream condemnation against us, that we are guilty, we come short. And Jesus says, come, and I'll give you rest. Rest for your souls. That's what we need. We don't simply need every once in a while rest for our bodies every night regularly. Your body tells you you need to rest. And once in the week, every six six days of work goes by and, and you realize, yes, it's the Creator's wisdom that we are given a day of rest. And it's the Redeemer's mercy that we may rest under the hearing of His Word and meditating upon the truths of His Word. We need rest indeed, especially for our souls, don't we? And that is what he promises. Notice what he says here at the end of verse 29, and ye shall find rest for your souls. Yes, we may seek everywhere else, but we'll never find it anywhere else except with Jesus. Rest for your souls. And another question, a question that many people are troubled about. May I come? May I come? Well, yes, the Lord speaks to us and He invites us. And so the gospel says, come, and surely that does mean come, doesn't it? You may come freely. Doesn't, doesn't the Bible say whenever there's an invitation that there's a certain universality to it? You listen to the Old Testament. Isaiah has this invitation on behalf of the Lord saying, Look unto me all the ends of the earth and be ye saved. Well, you couldn't be more universal than that. The Lord is inviting everyone no matter where they are on earth. In a time when when salvation seems to be restricted to the Jews in the Old Testament or the descendants of Israel. But no, the Lord already has a vision to a universal preaching of the gospel. And if you go to the end of the Bible, the last invitation of the Bible even says, Whosoever will, let him come and drink of the waters of life freely. So it's very obvious from all the invitations of Scripture that it is intended to be addressed to everyone who has ears to hear. In fact, verse 15 says, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Whosoever will, come. When you get an invitation, do you send back a letter? You say, well, I I have this this invitation that says, come, come to the wedding, come to the birthday party. Do you send a letter back, children, saying, well, it says come, but I just want to know, am I welcome? 
And some people wonder about the Lord's invitation. When he says, come, does that mean I'm welcome? Why, certainly. John Bunyan has written a book, Come and Welcome. Why do you even have to say that together? Well, because Satan tries to put little doubts in your mind, you see, when it comes to the invitation to salvation. He, he tries to distract you. He tries to deflect the openness and generality of, and graciousness and freeness of the invitation and offer of the gospel. And sure enough, it has happened with this invitation too, because some people do not only say, may I come, but may I come. And you see, the, there is a certain, and I was speaking about uh, the theological wrappings that people put around this to make it actually more of a limitation than an invitation, and this is a hyper-Calvinistic tendency, isn't it? The hyper-Calvinist has their own explanation. They say, wait a minute, pastor. Now, you have to read the rest of that. You're just reading the first couple of words there, but you have to read the rest. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. And you see what, what the Lord, this is how they would explain it. What the Lord means by this is, is you may come if you understand that your sins are very great and that the burden of your guiltiness is very great, and you have to have, to have this, this feeling of, of the conviction of your sin. And only then, only then you may come. Otherwise, if, if you come prematurely, if you come before you have, have come up to this grade of, of prerequisites, then you will end up with a stolen Christ. And, and phrases like that are used. I don't really know what that means exactly, but I suppose it's warning people about self-deception and so. But, but when these texts are used, they are turning the intention of the Savior upside down. He is not intending by this phrase to add limitations and qualifications and prerequisites to his invitation. No, he is adding these words because he wants to show how very suitable this invitation is to the people he sees walking around. What are those people? What kind of people are they? Well, they're the people who are, are being criticized for whom I rather Jesus even is criticized. Notice verse 19. And Jesus is using these, uh, these two pictures about children uh, dancing and, and about uh, uh, piping tunes and things like that. And, and the verse 19 says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man gluttonous and wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. You see, there are critics of Jesus' ministry because he freely has fellowship with people who, by the administration and the leadership of the church in that day, are called the sinner class. These are the infringed people. These are the down-and-outers, the people that, that are considered more outcasts. They, they haven't met the qualifications to come into the kingdom. And what do they do as a prescription for them? Well, they lay all kinds of burdens upon them. 
And I just want to turn you to Matthew 23 because it makes so clear what Jesus means by this and whom he is addressing. The Lord says, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, the scribes and Pharisees, those who sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they're, they're in the position of authority in Jerusalem's church in the time. And what do they do to these people? Well, they're, they're, they're not really genuine in all their prescriptions. He says in verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves do not move them with one of their fingers. And so what they do is they add legal prerequisites, legal requirements, and they tell these people, you know, in order to fix yourself up and make yourself worthy of entering the kingdom, what you have to do is you have to submit to these, these prescriptions of Moses in the Old Testament, and uh, you have to submit yourself to this ceremony and that ceremony and that sacrifice and that washing and that temple service and living a strict and decent life, and you have to tithe a tenth of this and a tenth of that. And, and they added more and more to the legal prescriptions until the burden on these people's shoulder was just so heavy that even Peter later said it was impossible, impossible for anyone to live up to all these requirements. And Jesus sees these people, these people coming to Jerusalem and coming to the synagogue, and, and they come in burdened, and they go out burdened, and he sees them, and he says, Oh, people, come to me, and I will give you rest. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to go through all these rituals. I will give this rest to you for free. And when it comes to the burden of, 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 my, of obedience, that yoke is easy. Its burden is light because duty will be fueled by love and acceptance and justification. Rest for your soul. What a joy obedience is when you love the Lord Jesus, when you know you already have been accepted by Him. You've already been prepared for heaven, and you want to show your gratitude. That's how it's put together in this passage. And so he says, come, come to me, whosoever will, anyone. If you just hear my invitation, he is saying, come means you're welcome. Yes, even you. He will not say, go to the law, do this, that, and the other thing. No, he gives healing to people. He gives sight to the needy. He heals and he gives mercy and he does wonderful things freely. But that does not mean that this grace is cheap. No. But it means that it's already paid for. Because Jesus paid it all. When it comes to those burdens, and when it comes to the guilt and the condemnation, Jesus took it all on himself. Look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane, how he is so pressed by the burden 
Why is that? Well, because Isaiah predicted that all we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord, the Father of justice, has has laid those iniquities upon him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity, the guiltiness, the punishability of all of our sins upon him. And he was most restless. And he was pressed by the weight of that. He was the one who labored and is heavy laden for sinners. And he paid it all. Blood was pressed out of his pores in that garden. And then you see him abused. And then you watch him go to the cross. And he is crucified. And as he is crucified, he pours out the blessings of grace already in the pain of the nails going through. When any other person would would curse his persecutors, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And with this, this he, he lays down his life. He goes to, the, to his deepest suffering, heavy laden, with the wrath of God upon him. He cries out, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why, indeed? So that the person who hears this invitation as can they say, he bore the burden. He has taken this burden that the law is putting upon me. He has taken it upon himself so that he may say to me, come and I'll give you rest. Yes, give you rest for free. You don't have to earn it. It's all paid by his blood, by his suffering. And as we hear about this gracious invitation that comes to us so freely and so compassionately, so graciously, the last question that we're going to have to go home with is, have I come? The question that needs to be settled before we come to the table How can you do this in remembrance of him if you have no Savior to remember? It's not merely an objective remembrance of the objective reality of his cross. Indeed, it is. It is that, most pointedly. But the best way to come to the table is having come to him, to Jesus with all your sin, with all your burdens, and having come to him to be able to come to the table and remember the Lord who is so merciful to you that he took upon himself the burden of your sin. Have you come? There may be some today who have to honestly say, No, I haven't. Well, then you have another question. I suppose that's the seventh question. Why not? Why would you not come 
to such a gracious, sufficient, loving Savior who has so loved that he gave his own life. There is no good reason why you should not come to him. Oh, do not delay. Come to him today if you have never come. Jesus is the one who you may be very sure is very sincere. Every time this this text is even read or preached, he is sincere about it because he's the Savior who wept because people did not come. Must he be weeping about you? Well, he did about many people when he said to Jerusalem, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often wouldn't I have gathered you with all the tenderness of a, of a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks under his wings because there's danger. Oh, there's the danger of the wrath of God coming upon us all. And he says, Come to me. Take shelter in me. And he said, But you would not. What a burden, because if we keep saying no to him, if we keep turning our back on his invitation till our dying day, he will come again. And then to you he will never say again, come. But in fact, in that day, if you have spurned his grace, if you have rejected his invitations all your life, you will hear these words, which are the opposite of what we hear today. Depart from me, you wicked, into the everlasting torment. Depart forever and ever away from this Jesus away from any kindness that he has shown, that you would be in the place of torment, have remembered that you had all these good things and privileges and you despise them. Oh, do not delay. Come to him. You say, I, I intend to sometime when? Well, well, before I die. And when are you going to die? Well, I guess I don't know. No, you don't. But you know you're here today. And you have heard it. And it's Jesus himself who is calling. Come. Because today, he opens his arms and he will welcome indeed any who come. Have you come? Are you able to say, yes, by the grace of God, all the resistance has been melted in my heart, and I have been drawn with the cords of his love to come to him with all the burden of my sin and, and to lay it at his feet and to, and to entrust myself wholly to him. Well, praise the Lord for that. Indeed, remember his goodness at the table, and don't stop coming. Peter has this, this special text in 1 Peter 2, verse 3 and 4, where he says, If so be you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming as unto a living stone, he goes on, and he uses that word coming. It's that present participle. It's that 
that word that in grammar says there's an ongoing action that's taking place, a repeated action. And he is, Peter is saying, oh, if you've tasted the grace of God, you want to come back to him over and over. No matter whatever troubles you, no matter how many times you fall into sin, no matter how many weaknesses you have, but you will want to come back to him and taste of his mercy again and again. Never stop coming to Jesus. He will welcome you every time. Until that day, that glorious day, when those who have come and keep coming to him, they will one day hear another invitation. When he will come upon the clouds of heaven and he will gather his people to himself and he will say to them, Come, ye blessed of my Father, enter now into my rest. Yes, that's the perfect rest. Because we know we will be still struggling here and we still have those interruptions to the tasting of his mercy. But then it will be perfect, a perfect. Maybe on Sunday we have a taste of that rest in him. We have something of a foreshadowing, of a foretaste. But then We will be forever with the Lord, and we will be forever at rest. No more sin, no more troubles, no more sorrows, no more attacks of Satan. At perfect rest, the eternal rest with Jesus. Amen.